Christians are so heavenly minded, they are of no earthly good. It's a saying you may have heard before, but that is absolutely, utterly untrue according to the Bible. Christians are actually of their greatest earthly good when they are heavenly minded. Of course, by heavenly minded, what I mean there is concerned with the Lord and the things of the Lord. And then when it comes to earthly good, I mean living for God's glory. As really built for discipleship series, that whole series was really like, what does it look like for us to live for the glory of God, displaying his character to the world, which is exactly what the church is to do. How else can Christians live for God's glory if we are not concerned about God and his desires? So once again, Christians are of greatest earthly good when we are, in fact, heavenly minded. I invite you to turn with me to the book of First Peter. We are in chapter 1. And we are in verses 13 to 21. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. By the way, if you're sitting next to somebody who maybe they're visiting for the first time, they're by themselves, it looks like uh, they could use some help getting to that passage, or if they don't have a Bible, it'd be awesome if you could just go ahead and share that with them. As you turn there, the Apostle Peter, let me just give you some background. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter in the early 60s AD before persecution under Nero really broke out big time. But these Christians that Peter was writing to in the early 60s AD were actually suffering persecution, sort of local persecution. Don't think widespread, but just think local. And he writes to the Christians throughout the regions known today, or various portions, various cities known today as Turkey, in the country of Turkey. He writes, of course, encouraging them to hope in Christ and His salvation even while suffering. And even in the midst of it, to continue living boldly for Jesus. In the verses up until now, if you're visiting with us, let me catch you up. In the verses until now, we saw there, as Peter writes, about the hope that is in Christ for the Christian, present and future. And how this hope actually was prophesied of in the Old Testament. Written, of course, hundreds of years earlier, before Jesus even came. Now we pick up here as an inference, right? Given everything we've looked at so far, he begins with a therefore. This is an inference on the things that have come before. Look there in verse 13. I'll read 13 to 21. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So, big idea. As we as Christians live for God's glory, again, remember that's the greatest good, 
as we live for His glory, how is it that we are to be heavenly minded? How is it that we are to be heavenly minded? Let's jump into it. Point number one, we see in our passage, it is by setting our hope on the Lord. By setting our hope on the Lord. Verse 13. Again, we've seen in the past that as strong as Christ is, so goes the Christian's hope. In our passage today, we see that God wants His people, in fact, to own that hope, which Peter uses hope in the same way, in many ways, that Paul uses the word faith. So you you can think of those as near interchangeable. And let me just back up here. If you are visiting with us and you are exploring Christianity, uh, I think here it would serve you best and really serve us all best to review why, in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. That is what gospel means. It means good news. This is the good news of Jesus that Christians believe. Well, friends, the whole entire Bible explains the history of how God has actually moved in Jesus Christ to save sinners. And you can summarize the gospel in four points. The young adults, you guys know this hopefully well by now. It is repeat after me, as cheesy as that is, just repeat after me. God, man, Christ, response. Those are like the four hooks, so to speak, that you can hang your gospel presentation on. God, man, Christ, response. And that really walks you through Genesis to Revelation. God, well, what about Him? He is the loving Creator who has created everything, including you and me, to be in a perfect, loving relationship with Him, where there is no sin, no wrongdoing, just love. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Of course, the problem, though, is we, that is man, humankind rebelled against him. Of course, the Bible calls this sin. The Bible speaks of this as rebellion. And they chose God, right? He draws near to his created people, just like a father would to his children. But his created people say, we don't really care about you. We, in effect, strive to be gods unto ourselves. We simply do what we want. We live according to the law, our own law, and we reject his He, the God of all love and grace and mercy, shows compassion to His children, but we don't care. Romans chapter 1 says, His created people did not honor Him as Lord, nor give thanks to Him, but instead they cast away His glory and opted for the glory found in created things, even themselves. They bow down and worship the created things. This is nothing less than trying to assume God's throne. And we all know that that we are in big trouble if we build our own throne when really God, the Creator, is the only rightful ruler and good king. And so this is rebellion. We have, according to the Word, earned ourselves just judgment. In hell, the Bible even says, dug our own hole and we got ourselves into this problem, this trouble. But here's the deal, right? We covered God, we covered man. Now we look at Christ right? As we dug ourselves into the hole, God, though, gets us out. God sends His only Son, His eternal Son. It's not like God, uh, the Spirit of God, somehow had intercourse with a woman and produced a son. Uh, That is not what happened. He sends His eternal Son to take on flesh, to live the righteous life that we should have, And he dies the death that his people deserve so that we would not have to. And so there's this sweet exchange. Christ comes, dies on the cross, bears the wrath that we deserve in order that we would be free and that we would know God as Father. And so we are provided escape through Jesus Christ, the Lord, God's Messiah. 
But the question then is, how can one be saved, forgiven of their sin, reconciled to God, their creator, and adopted into his family? How is it? Well, the awesome thing, friend, is that because Christ has done it all, all that is left to do is to turn from your sins and believe on him, trust in him, acknowledge him, and you will be saved. Again, forgiven of your sin, pardoned, not just pardoned though, but made a legitimate citizen of his kingdom, inheritor of his grace, where you come to know him as loving father. Friends, you see that this is good news. This is the gospel. The king has pardoned us and he has made us his family members, inheritors of his grace. Let me encourage you, if you want to know more about this Jesus that we talk about, and again, you're you're exploring Christianity, let me encourage you, uh, if you want to, you can come and see me. I'm going to be standing at those doors at the back, and I can encourage you to, to link up with somebody here at this church to study the claims of Christ according to his word. So for the sake of intellectual integrity, why not, before rejecting Christ, why not explore the claims of Jesus according to his word and make a decision based on that. And Christ, we know, calls us to turn from our sins and believe. And you too, friend, will be saved. That, friends, is the good news. The Bible teaches us about this essential nature of Christian hope. God saves sinners in Christ. But here's the deal, as you've heard in this passage, the Bible says we still live in this fallen and sinful world. We ourselves are not perfect. No Christian is perfect. If you know us, we, you know that we sin. But there will be one day when sin will be done away with once and for all at Christ's return. And friends, don't we look forward to that day when He will come to right every wrong, destroy or throw away the key to hell, so to speak, and bring His people to Himself? But the question is, as we wait for that day, what are we to do now? And that's what our passage addresses, right? How are we to be of greatest earthly good, living for the glory of God, while being heavenly minded. You look there, what do we do? Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself too spoke of his return. He said in John 14, chapter, chapter 14, verse three, if I go and prepare a place for you, he's, he knows he's going to die, be resurrected, ascend to glory, go to heaven. I will come back and welcome you into my presence so that you may be where I am. John 14, 3 speaks of his own return there. Christ and his final salvation is this grace, Christian, that will be brought to you. If you've been been with us through 1 Peter, you see this trajectory here, why it is so encouraging. This grace, as we looked at in chapter 1, verse 10, that has been prophesied in the Old Testament, right? Verse 10 of chapter 1. This grace in the present that we know as we have a living hope, we stand in this grace. This grace, too, that here is in the future in all of its glory will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, Christian, if you are struggling trials and temptations as they were, if you're being persecuted for your faith, he he wraps the Christian in God's eternal grace, past present and to arrive in the future. We are covered in grace from start to finish. So he therefore says, Peter, set your hope fully, completely on this grace, because that is what he has planned for you and me if you are a Christian. Okay, but how are we to set our minds on this grace? How are we to set our minds on this grace? Did you notice the emphasis on mindset in chapter, in verse 13? Mindset. We're, we're going to get to action, but here he addresses mindset 
In verse 13, he says, by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. You folks who love English, you know that these are participles, and in fact, in Greek, they are too. The verb, the main verb is set your hope here. It's modified, right? How are we to set our hope? It is by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So first, we need, Peter says, a mind of commitment, a mind of commitment. He says they're preparing your minds for action. In Greek, it is girding up the loins of your mind. Now, we today would think like, what in the world is he talking about? Uh, Well, I gained more of an understanding of this term when we lived in the Middle East. Uh, It's where our first two children spent, you know, their early years there, and Bethan was born over there. Well, friends, Arabic men wear something like a robe called a kundura or a dish dash, and, uh, you know, oftentimes they have pants underneath. And if the situation called for where they had to do something active like run away, you see these audacious, you know, crazy videos that don't represent the Middle East at all. But sometimes, you know, that you have this, you have a group of men hanging out in their lounge area. And this one video that I saw on YouTube, as you know, I frequent often, uh, he's running away from a lion because somebody has a pet lion and he's needing to hold his kundura with his hands so that he can run around and run away. Well, they got to hold it, right? In some ways, that is an action of girding up the loins, right? The loin cloth so that they can be ready for action. Well, for Peter's first century readers, girding up the loins of their minds meant, so to speak, taking their garments and tucking them into their belt or tying them together mentally so that they could be ready for action. Of course, this is an illusion. They're to do this mentally. Their minds are to be prepared for actions, action, their disposition, their thoughts, They are to be prepared, prepared for trials of various kinds, as that is what they were going through, prepared for persecution, prepared even to fight against their own sin, prepared for Satan's attack, who, according to Peter later on in 5.8 says, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's why they they need to be ready for action mentally as they pursue God. Second, they also need to be sober-minded. Think of a mind of clarity. So you got mind for commitment. Think of mind of clarity. And he's not just saying that Christians should stay away from junk, drunkenness, which is in fact a sin. Uh, you, you, you guys know, obviously, the drunken mind is an unalert mind. It is a dull mind, sluggish by alcohol. But the point here is that the sober-minded Christian is alert to and aware of the things of Christ, His kingship, His commands, His people, His desires, and in fact, His return. One wonders, right, as Peter was writing this portion of the letter, if he was recalling the words of the Lord that he himself had heard, as Jesus said to him and the other disciples in Luke 12, let your loins stay girded, or as another version puts it, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning And be like men who are waiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. You get the idea there? These Christians are to stand at their post, at attention, ready to receive their king. They are alert to and aware of the things of their king and his kingdom. And to do that, Christians therefore need a mindset of clarity and a mindset of commitment. This is simple vigilance of mind. As we set our hope on Christ, 
while living in this fallen and sinful world. We know that suffering still exists because of sin. Even our own sin, sometimes we cause others to suffer, and certainly others cause us to suffer too. This means, though, that we need to be, have a mind of clarity and a mind of commitment as we go through trials and persecution. This is incredibly important for us today. If you have been like me, you know that a lot of churchgoers turn away and struggle in their faith. They turn away from Christ when times are difficult, in trials, difficulty, challenges. One of the main reasons why is that I, for myself, had adopted something of a soft prosperity gospel. You guys know what I mean by when I say that? The, the prosperity gospel heralds a false gospel that says, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy here in this world. And all you have to do is just have enough faith, which is the equivalent of like willpower. You can even, some go on to say, you can even become like God. That's the whole purpose of Christianity. You can speak and manifest your wildest dreams into existence. And they redefine faith once again as willpower as opposed to a simple believing in, trusting in, and acknowledging in Him who is Jesus and His cross work. Now many Christians, you know, many Christians today in the evangelical world, they don't adopt this in an all-out way, but maybe you have adopted it too in a soft way like I had in the past. You know how you have You want to know how this false doctrine has somehow crept into our minds. Well, have you ever said in the midst of suffering, I've served you so much, Jesus, I don't deserve to suffer in this way. I'm a Christian, so why is it that my children are struggling? Or you say, I follow you, Lord, so why haven't you given me that spouse I wanted, the job I wanted, the salary I wanted, the health I wanted? You hear that? It is, the, it is the mentality of, I serve God, therefore I deserve, or I have earned, or it is my right God. Friends, that is the prosperity gospel, soft prosperity gospel. This horrible theology, which has lies from the pit of hell, I'm not kidding, has such a warped view of God. He, there he is presented as a genie in your lamp that you just kind of get out whenever you want, so that He might help you achieve whatever you want. It makes God to be your water boy, your cheerleader, serving you. He's like your Sherpa going to the highest heights of your own head. That's it. There is no awe of God as Creator, as Sovereign King. And this is no God of love. Just think about ourselves. I mean, what parent, what friend, what loved one would give their own children everything that their three-year-old wanted. Who does that? You can think, right? Christ was a real person. It's like if I brought up Melanie, my wife over here, and I said, I believe in Melanie. And I know that she's made a marriage commitment to me. And then I use her in the wrong way and say, if I just will enough in Melanie's name, she will give me everything that I've ever wanted. And then I will and I will and I will. And I stare in the mirror and I manifest all the things I've ever wanted. And then, she, and then it doesn't come true. But has Melanie promised me that to begin with? Is that, is, that how she, is that how I should understand our marriage covenant, that she functions like that? This theology is horrible in that it warps our view of God. Not only does this theology dishonor God according to His Word, this theology shipwrecks the Christian's faith. And the reason why I'm spending so much time on this is because I know many, many Christians 
who have shipwrecked their faith because they have somehow been taught this false gospel. And when they don't get what they want, they conclude, something must be wrong with me. Surely something is wrong with me. My parents got sick with cancer and died because I didn't have enough faith, they say. And maybe in this drenched, drenched in insecurity, they say, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe God doesn't love me. Or they go on to conclude, God is not faithful. But we need to be clear-headed, sober-minded about suffering in this world. Jesus Himself suffered. Are we going to say the faithful one who had all faith did not have enough faith? Not only that, though, but did, did Jesus say that we should expect no suffering? Or that He will, in the immediate, get us out of suffering at any moment that we please? That we are going to evade all of sickness in this life and the curse of sin whenever we want? Did He actually promise that when, when people get sick around us, and Melanie and I have had a, you know, people sick very close to us, go on and die? Did he say that just because we will it enough that he will cause them to live forever into eternity? Here in this world, earth in an earthly sense, John 15, 18 says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. What about the apostles? All martyred but one. And even he, John, still suffered persecution and was exiled. Did they have not have enough faith? I'm speaking to myself here as I have believed this false gospel in a soft way. Furthermore, listen to Paul as he encourages Timothy in his pastorate in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Share in, he doesn't say, all of the earthly glories that you desire, everything that you can possibly manifest. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, he says, preparing him for his ministry. Of course, not all of us will be persecuted in our faith. Praise the Lord for that. But this is the general course of history for Christians. So we can think about the martyrs in church history. They suffered not because they lacked faith, right? They suffered. You can see Hebrews 11, for example. They are praised for their awesome faith. They are condemned for their faith. They are lauded for their faith doesn't mean that we need to go out and seek persecution and suffering, but this is just the simple truth. The Bible even speaks of illness. John chapter 9, someone asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? And Jesus says, who sinned, or sorry, they say, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus says, neither. 9.3 says, it was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We know God has infinite purposes for what happens. Here He brings up one very clear one, but that the works of God would be displayed in Him. God also speaks about natural disasters. They don't happen because always in Scripture because people sin. It is possible that it happened for different reasons. Friends, if we want, we, we want to be sober-minded. We need to be sober-minded and clear-headed about the suffering that goes on in this Christian life accord, based on or from the result of sin. And it will, be help, it, it will help us to be, be prepared for action. I want it to help us know how to persevere in faith. I want it to help us to know how to rejoice in Christ despite whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. It is true that God will rescue, 
that God will deliver, that God will make all things new, that every tear will be wiped away, that sin will be no more, and our broken bodies and messed up minds on account of sin will be made new. When is that? It is not here. It is when Christ returns. Of course, we also need to be sober-minded about who God is and what He has done in Christ so that in the midst of trials, we know how to live well. We can trust that Jesus is our, in fact, good shepherd, and therefore we shall not want because there is all satisfaction in Jesus. And First Peter helps us be clear-minded about who God is and what He has won for His people in Jesus. He is the Lord of all. On account of His love in Christ, He has provided His people a true, lasting hope. He has provided us an eternal inheritance that we will know in full at the revelation of Jesus Christ once and for all and in full. And as was prayed earlier, we come to know Jesus. We see Him face to face in perfect union with Him, full deliverance for His people. Then, then, that's why there's such a clear hope here. Church, we need to have sober minds ready for action. So let me encourage you guys to give yourself to growing in your understanding of who God is according to His Word. According to His Word. Anything outside of that is just God according to man. And you won't get very far there. But God according to His Word, there we have the true revelation. So friend, if you're struggling to understand a topic like suffering in the Christian life, the problem of evil, how a, how a God of sovereignty interacts with us today, which is called providence. There are awesome resources to read. And we as pastors can recommend these resources to you, whether they be small of 50 pages, two thousands of pages, whatever you want, we got it for you. So let me encourage you, right? If you're struggling with a topic, why don't you identify that topic? Come get a resource from the pastor or Bible verses. Grab a friend who lives near you or works near you and then commit yourself to reading, studying those scriptures, discussing, praying through those passages together. And friends, when it comes to the topic of suffering in the Christian life, it is best to be prepared ahead of time, as that will help you know how to think and act and trust in God in your moment of need. Because you, friend, will not find Him wanting if you know Him according to His Word. As we live for God's glory, greatest good, how are we to be heavenly minded? Point number one, to close up here by setting your hope on Christ. Point number two, by being holy as the Lord is holy. By being holy as the Lord is holy. You look there at verses 14 to 16. The main thrust there is verse 15. Look there. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. I wonder what you think about Christian holiness. You know, a lot of people think Christian holiness is just something Christians are to do. Christians are to simply be good or we are to be moral. I had one friend say to me, she said she was inviting me to join in her sin uh, in a very clear way. And uh, she said, you just follow Jesus because you just follow, you're just a Christian because you want to be good. And I, and I looked at her and I said, well, what do you mean there? Because it all depends on what we understand Christianity to be. Non-Christians, she saw Christianity as a bunch of rules for morality to control ourselves or something like that. That's definitely not the foundation of Christianity. You can get that anywhere. You can go follow the Stoics and you get regular rules for life to control yourself. That is not Christianity. In verses 15 to 16, what is the foundation of Christian holiness? It is God Himself. Be holy as He 
person who called you is holy. The language there of he who called you. He who called you. That's super important here. Paul is talking about God who calls his people into relationship with him. When he calls, he calls people to relationship with him. It is fundamentally about relationship with God, the Holy One. Notice the language, too, of father and children in those verses. If you call on him as father, you have that language, as obedient children. Just as God the Father is holy, that is the God who draws us, the God who calls us, the God who saves us to himself, so his children are to be holy. Think again of regular life. Just as children reflect the image of their parents, so Christians are to reflect the image of their Father in heaven. Christians, as obedient children through the Holy Spirit, are to be as the Father is and do as the Father does. Of course, we're not perfect. We are to be as the Father is, who is holy. Do as the Father does, who is holy. This concept of God's holiness is straightforward in Scripture. We sang about it earlier. God is set apart. Set apart. Basic definition, good definition of holiness. He is set apart in all of His attributes. He is set apart in His righteousness, in His holiness, in His purity. And so therefore, all that issues from Him, including His law, is righteous and pure. If you wanted to, you can try and come up with your own law. I can guarantee you, you're not going to get very far before you realize, like, I'm going to stuck here, how you navigate the whole entire world. What issues from God is holiness, purity, righteousness, because He Himself is those very things and defines those very things. And when He saves the people for Himself, He sets them apart for His purposes, for His use, for His holiness and righteousness. Think about the Old Testament. Old Testament people, God formed Israel. They were set apart or sanctified. Important word, sanctified. They are set apart as God's people for His own possession. There is the word sanctification, which is a growth in holiness, ongoing, doesn't finish all the way until you are with glory, with Jesus, right? But here we're talking about sanctified, a different use that is set apart. When we are saved, we are sanctified as Christians. We are set apart for His holy purposes. And so in Leviticus 11 says this, Leviticus 11 says, God says there, be holy for I am holy. And He's using Israel to display His glory to the watching world. The world had rejected him. He draws near to Abraham. From Abraham, God forms Israel, and they are to display his holiness to the world. When it comes to our passage, Peter here quotes directly from Leviticus. Be holy in all your conduct since it is written. Because it is written. Not because Peter says, this is just what we do in the first century. It's because it is written in the Old Testament about God's people. You shall be holy for I am holy. God's intention for his people has always been that they would be holy as God is holy, displaying His righteousness and His love to the world, shining forth His glory in Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament Israel, Old Testament Israel looked forward to the day when the Messiah or the Christ would come in His holiness and righteousness to save. We today, given Christ has already come, we look back. We look back to Christ, His cross and His resurrection. Christ, the holy and righteous one, And according to Galatians 3, 7, all those who have faith in Christ are Abraham's true children. Just as Old Testament Israel were sojourners and exiles as they went from Egypt to the promised land, so we the church are also sojourners and exiles. That is what Peter calls us in this world going from this land to the heavenly land. And so we are exiles in this world, but not truly at home with this world. Friends, if you are a Christian, 
God wants you to display His glory and loving character to the watching world in your holiness. Not perfection, but as you repent and live in holiness in Jesus. As Christ delivered us from the power of sin, therefore Christians live for Christ, showing all, everybody, non-Christians too, that, friends, there is freedom from sin. I used to be enslaved to that, but not anymore. We show that there is freedom from sin and judgment. Freedom is possible in the power of Christ. As Christ turned our hostility, the Bible says that we were hostile, even though we might not even have known it or been conscious of it. We are hostile to Jesus, but He turns that hostility into peace as He pours out His love and mercy and peace, His love in our hearts, Romans 5. And so we testify to the world that peace is available in Christ. I used to be like that, but now I'm like this. As Christ opened our eyes to His good and gracious rule, His reign of grace, His rule of grace, His law, we now, as His citizens, we tell the world that turning from our sin and our own law as if we were God and then submitting to Him is the best and safest place to be. No doubt it isn't always easy. Sometimes it is hard. Sometimes we struggle. But it is the best place to be. Of course, again, we're not perfect. We still struggle with sin. God knows this. This is why He calls us to repent. This is why in our passage we are warned to not go back to living in our sin. That's like going back to the dungeon that we were redeemed from. Peter warns, look there in verse 14, do not be conformed to the pattern of your former ignorance. Don't return to your sin. This former ignorance there, they're talking about their lives, previous lives before Christ in their B.C. days, before Christ's days, that when they were living in idolatry and impurity when they were Gentiles. That's what marked their lives before they became Christians. If you became a Christian later on in life, maybe you understand this. Maybe you lived according to your own wisdom and your knowledge. You were the ruler of your own life. And so on the scale of morality, there's so many people here, on the scale of morality, maybe some of you before Jesus, you were ultra-moral, trusting in your own righteousness, maybe like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Society would have entrusted you with their, their keys, right? And then on the other side, maybe some of you were ultra-immoral according to the goody-two-shoes, so to speak, of society. This seems to be the reader's background in 1 Peter chapter 4. They used to live in debauchery, but no longer. But then you remember how God saved you? By His grace in Jesus. You remember when you came to see that Jesus was better? As pastors, you know, we get to be on the front lines of watching people come to know Christ, understand, wrestle with who is this Jesus? Did He really get up from the grave? And why should I trust the Bible? Like Those are things that we as pastors want people to explore, people who are getting to know this Jesus. And it's such a privilege to be on the front lines. I knew a guy in Dubai who before coming to Christ would spend literally hours of his, on his knees memorizing Scripture, trying to earn God's salvation. That's what he said. But he always feared whether that was actually enough. He came to church that I was at. He heard the gospel of free grace, free grace of God and Jesus Christ, and he was saved. He went on to honor Christ in his deeds as opposed to trying to save himself through his deeds. Another gal 
that I have known was plagued by all of the bad things that she had done in her past regarding her life of immorality, which had a lot of negative consequences. Being hounded by guilt and shame, she wondered, is there really enough forgiveness in Christ deep enough for me? She then meets Christ for the first time according to Scripture in a Bible study. And she turns from her sins and turns to Jesus, finding forgiveness and the love of God. And she now walks in purity as the daughter of a pure, the pure and righteous God. Another gal, atheist from China, started a great career at the National Institute of Health in Washington, D.C. She comes to the church, get this, in order to better debunk Christianity, literally. She came to church in order to better debunk Christianity, but she begins studying the Bible with Melanie and I, and God begins to work in her heart. It's just studying the claims of Christ according to His Word. Not trying to convince her of anything, just studying it. One day, she taps me on the shoulder and she says, I think I believe. She now lives wholly unto God, which includes the mind, reasons to believe in this Christ. Isn't it encouraging to hear these stories? Hearing about how God moves in people's lives, encouraging us in our faith of holiness as we hear stories of others. Isn't that awesome, Christian, that your holiness can be encouraged? You can walk more strongly, faithfully in Jesus through hearing about how God saves people? You, friend, have a testimony, if you are a Christian, about how God saves you from your sin. There are so many different ways to apply this passage, but to encourage us in our holiness as we follow Jesus, let me just encourage you guys to share your testimony of how God saved you out of your sin. So for lunch today, if you do not have any plans, why not grab someone and go eat lunch with them? Ask them specifically, how did you become a Christian? What is it that God saved you out of? And ask them, do you currently struggle in a, in, in, in a certain way to turn away from sin and towards Christ? And how do you find that getting more how do you find that getting easier as you trust in God even though we struggle? Right? I imagine that if we did this, we would all hear so many different stories, but all about the same Savior who has loved us as Christians and gave and has given himself for us. We might hear some stories like the ones I just mentioned, praise God. You might hear other stories of, you know what, by God's grace and kindness, there was never a day when I did not know Jesus as the Lord and Savior. Isn't that awesome? Don't we all pray that for our friends and our children? We want to say, praise God. Then we can go on and hear about how your parents taught you about the gospel from a young age. Let me also say, if in the process, in maybe thinking about your own testimony of how did I become a Christian, if you find yourself saying or realizing that you continue to live in a pattern of unrepentant sin, please come talk to the pastors. Please. The Bible says, as offensive as, as it may be, you may not be a Christian. And I, friends, had needed to be encountered with that question and that truth myself. Jesus says, right in Matthew 7, you will know a tree by its fruit. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 says, if you claim to have fellowship with the light but walk in darkness, you lie 
and the truth of God is not in you. Of course, there he's thinking about a pattern, a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. Not stumbling like we all do. We're talking about a lifestyle of sin, unrepentant, continual walking in sin. If that is you, we want to encourage you then, just as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 13, to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. That's a good thing. And if you have this realization, friends, let me encourage you to take it as God's grace revealing the fact that you, friend, need to repent. Do not be embarrassed about it. This is good news. It is that Jesus has been saving hypocrites from the beginning. In fact, sorry moralists out there, we are all hypocrites. It is just that the Christian, when struggling with hypocrisy, repents. So please, let me encourage you to come talk to the pastors so we can walk with you through this process. This is a way of loving others. By God's grace, we can help you turn to Christ, forsake your sin, and start living with Him as you confess your sins. Turn, that's what repentance means, and turn to God. We know that repentance is crucial. You look there, or just listen to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And choosing to remain in your sin brings the judgment of God. This is exactly what Peter wanted his readers to understand. And this brings us to point number three, our last and final point. As we live for God's glory, again, that is the greatest good. How are we to be heavenly minded? Point number three, we are to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. The main point there is found in verse 17. He says there, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Right? You notice the emphasis, how they are to conduct themselves. It is with fear as they go from this land to the next. One obvious question is, what is this nature of this fear? Is it terror? No. Is it terror? No. We know that God uses this language of father and children, and that's supposed to encourage Christians, right? We know that we don't need to live in terror from God. We can think, too, about the confidence that the Christian has in Christ. No one will snatch us out of the Father's hand, and He lavishes His love upon us in Jesus Christ. So this fear does not mean terror. Is it reverence, then? Is it reverence? This is closer, but I'm sure we may know people who live with a certain reverence for Jesus, but it means little little more than giving Jesus the head nod. But if we were to keep this idea of reverence, let's expand here. The fear spoken of here is a worshipful reverence a worshipful reverence that necessarily involves awe. Worshipful reverence that necessarily involves awe. This idea of Father, there you get that aspect of worship, and obviously Lord, you get that aspect of worship. We see what marks this fear in the rest of our passage there. It involves an understanding that God is judge. Not just God as judge over them, the sinners who persecute in relation to their setting, God is not only judge over them, but He is judge over me. And He says that's important, Christians, as we live our our lives here. If we imagine ourselves suffering in the faith and persecution, if you are a little trigger-happy with retribution, you might read verse 17 and think, yes, yes, you better believe I'm going to call on God the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. God, you're going to judge them, my persecutors right? And in our self-righteousness, maybe our lack of patience, maybe our lack of forgiveness, that heart posture, we itch that God would judge them of their sin while conveniently forgetting that God is still judge over us. But Paul redirects. Paul's thought is there. If you, Christian, call on him as Father, who, yes, is going to judge them, yes, judges impartially according to each one's deeds, remember too, 
God is judge over you. Therefore, conduct yourselves with fear. Yes, God will judge others. That's very clear. 4.18, chapter 4, verse 18, God will judge them. So we therefore can entrust God to do what He's going to do. Peter wants us to know that. But as we live our lives for Christ, we are first to be concerned with our own sin and accountability to God. What is this fear? It is a worshipful reverence that involves awe of God the judge. Second, it is also a reverence that understands God's plan of salvation in Christ alone. 18 and 19, look there, 18 and 19. We have reason why Christians should conduct themselves with fear. 18 and 19, I'll go ahead and read that. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What seems to be compared here is the idol's inability to save versus the Lord's ability to save. You hear echoes of Israel's experience out of the Exodus. The case is made that the account of Exodus shows that impotent idols are nothing compared to the omnipotent sovereign Lord, right? Egypt was a polytheistic people. Pharaoh himself was considered a god. And here comes the Lord of all. Plague after plague after plague. The Lord of heaven destroying the gods of the earth so that once again His name would be known to the earth as the Egyptians refused to acknowledge God. In our passage, we have a reminder of the inability of things to save and then God's sovereign ability to save. We are not saved by the mute things of silver and gold. Friends, you were ransomed by the Lord of heaven. He is the sovereign one whose absolute ability is displayed in Jesus Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That's sovereign existence. He was manifested, that is, in the incarnation, sovereign over the physical realm. God raised him from the dead and gave him glory, verse 21. And he is now enthroned at the right hand of God the Father verse 21. And he wields, friends, this sovereignty for you, Christian. He was foreknown. He was manifest for your sake, Peter says. So Christian, as you're tempted to go back to your sins in the midst of trials and temptations, to go back and seek deliverance from all that calls out your name as you seek escapism, Forget bowing down to the reputation, the idol of reputation and glory, culling the world's praise. Why live for the praise of the world when their compass all points to a different direction? And more fundamentally, why live for the praise of the world when Jesus Christ has a name above every name and at His name every name will bow, whether in salvation or in judgment? May we therefore repent wanting the, to give glory to God alone. Forget the worship of security that comes from a big bank account or that big salary. What can money do for you when death arrives? Christ alone provides security. He alone has power over sin, death, and Satan. Friends, forget the power that might come from climbing whatever social strata you have chosen to identify in. Sure, you may arrive one day at the top of the seat of power in that little world, but that does nothing to get you right with God who brings leaders up and then brings them down and who calls all to give an account. Only Christ can save us from our biggest problem of sin and judgment. Only Christ our great mediator, can reconcile us to God the Creator. Only He is able. 
as He wields His sovereignty and holiness for you. Only He can ransom us from our sin as He alone is qualified to be this final sacrifice. He says there, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He is the final sacrifice that all of the sacrifices pointed to and, and He is the one who fulfills them all. The eternal one foreknown before the foundation of the world, verse 18 says, prophesied of the Old Testament, manifested for your sake, Christian. He has died on the cross for His people's sins and He's raised from the grave so that you don't need, wouldn't be fooled in trusting in the created things, but that you would trust in Christ the living Savior and you would display His glory to the watching world. To conclude here, as we live for God's glory, the greatest good, How are we to be heavenly minded? It is by setting your hope in Christ. It is by being holy as the Lord is holy. And it is to fear the Lord as He is judge, Father and judge. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we confess that we need clearer minds. We confess even as we have sung earlier in Come Thou Fount, we know our hearts are prone to wander. We know many times we are tempted to go to the world's things, to return to our own sin. We confess, God, that we sometimes don't have a love for Your Word and You as You've spoken through it. We thank You, God, that You are one who knows our weaknesses. You are one who identifies with us. You are one who knows our struggles, and you are the one who comes to our aid. So God, we pray that as you are indeed the Christian's Father, our Father, we pray, God, that you by your love would help us by your Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, that we might set our minds on the things of Christ. We pray, God, that you would steal our minds as we live in this world and struggle in this world as we know that that is a simple fact as a result of the fall as suffering and death come into the world through sin. We thank You, God, that one day You will make all things new and in that we can trust. God, we praise You as Father, the One who fulfills all of Your promises. So Lord, we pray that by Your Spirit You would secure our hearts to Your promises and that we would know that You are God who makes promises and that You are God who fulfills them all in Jesus. Father, we pray that we would not rely on our own strength, but in fact You would, you would fill us with Your Spirit and that You would help us live in the strength of Christ even as we strive to be a faithful display of Your glory. And God, we, in light of our confession of sin, in light of our own struggles, we pray that we would show our holiness, especially in the way that we confess, especially in the way that we strive to repent, because we know your great holiness, and we pray, Lord, that we would, you would help us continue to move in this direction as you sanctify us according to your word and according to your spirit. We pray, Lord, that Evergreen would be a faithful display of your glory to the watching world. And we thank You, God, that we know forgiveness in Christ as You promise as well that those who sin ought to repent of our sins and confess them knowing that You are holy and righteous to forgive. Do these things, we pray, for Your name and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.